Let's go ahead and begin with a prayer, and then we'll go ahead and start the class. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity we have uh, to be in this place together, uh, to be focused on, for some of us, uh, brand new ideas, for others of us, uh, maybe to be reminded of things that we, we believe are core and central to who we want to be in Christ. And we just thank you for all the, the time and the effort that the various presenters have, have put in in order to, to help guide our hearts and, and to shape our imaginations. I just pray that you would help us to be able to receive what it is from your Holy Spirit that you need us to hear. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So for those of you who uh, were not with us yesterday, uh, we, we walked through uh, kind of an overview description of what my leadership at the Southern Hills Church of Christ in Abilene, what we've gone through together as they, they prayed and studied and, and shared their hearts about an issue that they felt like God was calling them to make a decision about. Uh, and one of the, the things that I want to reiterate this morning is, it, for me and most, uh, most of the places I've been, elders don't tend to make that kind of decision that's going to cause significant change in the life of a church unless they're held hostage in one way or another. Um, and, and so they're, they're at times reckless and they're moving too quickly because they're trying to stop the bleeding of whatever group is saying, you know, you do this or else we're leaving. Um, and we're not going to, again, as we didn't last, uh, last class time, we're, we're not going to go deeply into the theological argument one way or the other about uh, either expanding or restricting women's roles uh, in the life of the church. That's not what the class is about. The class is about how does the leadership make a decision, stay in a decision-making process when there's that much at stake without being held hostage. Um, and that ended up being a really important platform for the entire, uh, the entire not, not only the, the time that the elders were focused on it, but when the church was made aware of what was going on, it mattered that the elders didn't do this because some vocal minority had told them that they had to do this. When it, at least in Southern Hills, when people came to the realization that they wanted something different when it came to women's participation in the life of the church, they left quietly and they left here and there. Um, and actually, those peaceable leavings were really important because they were core people. You know, they were, they were people the elders loved and knew well. Uh, and so when you look up and realize that that person's leaving because we don't have the courage to talk about something that's difficult, that's really important. I think it's important for us to realize that, that often, in terms of not only a congregation, but a tradition tackling a difficult issue, it takes people leaving. It also takes people staying. Uh, and so we, we've got to have a sense of where, where our place is in all of that. You know, as somebody who is, has done what I can to be trained, in not only in our tradition, but theologically and in, and in church leadership, I feel like my role is to stay but to also draw pastoral attention to the people who can't bring themselves to stay um, and help our elders see those people and understand why they're leaving. 
Uh, and so that became the impetus for why the elders came to me and said, we really wanna, we wanna look at this and study it. So what we're gonna talk about uh, this morning is kind of the nine things that took place in this decision-making process that were beneficial enough and important enough that the next time our eldership has to take up a difficult conversation, and I can tell you uh, th that those conversations are already beginning to develop, right? There's, in your church at any given time, there's really important things when it comes to uh, the culture and how the church is relating to broader culture. That, that's always there, right? So you, you know things are beginning to develop. These nine practices for us are now a part of our leadership culture of how we're going to make difficult decisions. Okay, so the first is what we've already talked about some, learning the value of the elders proactively, being the ones who say, this is important enough, this is central enough, we have to take another look at this. Uh, and it's really important that it's, it's not just the staff pushing the elders to talk about something that the elders aren't ready to talk about. You can do that, but that becomes the story that gets out to the church. And in our tradition, that's the fastest way to undercut any sort of congregational change. Unless a preacher's been somewhere for 30, 40 years and, and basically is functioning uh, in the model of, of head pastor, we wouldn't use that term, but they've got that kind of leadership credibility, the quickest way to undercut something is to pick a person or a couple of people on staff or in the church and say, this is their personal passion, they've got an agenda, uh, and, and you, can stop, you can stop a really important conversation from happening by doing that. So for the elders collectively to say, yeah, this is important. Um, and one of the things that, that they did on their own um, was you can imagine with, we started out with 19 elders at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, when we, we ended up taking the vote 19 months later, it was 15 to 4 in favor of expanding women's roles at, at Southern Hills. Um, those four guys took it hard. Uh, they pretty much knew where everybody was standing by the time they took a vote, but it still was, it was a hard realization to them. They had, you know, we'd had lots and lots of conversations in those meetings, and they thought they had swayed some people more than they had been able to. Um, and so when, it, when they saw it in writing, 15 to 4, um, it, it was obviously going to be an anonymous, but their behavior um, in the leadership after the vote made it clear, right? Now, we, we protected, obviously, as we talked to the church about it, none of, none of that, none of those names, none of those positions ever were shared with anyone else. Um, but pretty quickly, two of those guys said, I want to stay at the church, but I can't stay on the eldership. And I don't want to be divisive, um, and I want to submit myself to the authority of the eldership, but I can't, I don't think I can explain to somebody who's asking me why we made this decision. I don't think in good conscience I can say this is why this is the right thing to do. Um, and that broke uh, many of our elders' hearts because they wanted to believe that we could have unity with, with diverse, strong positions on this. Um, and part of it was, you know, it, it was complicated by not just congregational life. Um, part of it's also how they were going to be perceived in other areas of their life. One of these elders happens to work for a parachurch organization that ministers to very conservative churches of Christ. And he knew. 
if he was on the eldership when that decision was made public, he was probably not going to be invited to speak to any of those churches and do any ministry, right? So it, it, was, it was more complicated than just the issue itself, which is how all of these go, right? Um, another guy moved. Uh, his, his job relocated, and he was trying to work through it. Um, I, I believe that if he'd stayed in our our, our town, he, he would still be an elder at our church. He was, he was trying to process, how could I be out of step with the rest of, of my fellow elders? I need to understand this. Um, and then the fourth is still on our eldership. Uh, and I will say as positively as I can, we have a strained relationship because he thinks, he feels um, that he's not able to win a theological argument with me and that makes him frustrated and it makes him feel like he can't win um, and he lost out on this and he loves our church he trusts me he doesn't feel like I went around him ever or you know misled him in any way or I didn't listen to him he's just really frustrated that uh, we we made a decision he didn't he didn't agree with but we have both made a commitment to stay in relationship. Um, and part of that was this, this research project I did demanded that I was going to interview every one of the elders after the vote. Um, and you can imagine how awkward that conversation was initially. Um, and it was made worse by the fact that I was having to record it for the project. Um, and if you want to make somebody feel awkward and formal, pull out a little mini recorder and say, just, just act natural. Right? That doesn't happen. But I was able to apologize to him for the way he was feeling without apologizing for the decision that we made. You can do that across the table. You can't do that from, from a, a public forum uh, pulpit, right? And this has been one of the things our elders have had to learn as well, that when we have members who want to find a way to stay but are really struggling, you can't craft a statement that gets up and says to everybody, hey, we're sorry that you don't like the decision we made, but we're glad we made it. That, that's not pastoral. Um, but when you're sitting across a, a lunch table or a breakfast table or a coffee table and you say to somebody, we really feel like the Holy Spirit led us here, but I'm sorry that it's been hard for you. And I'm sorry that your friend doesn't go to our church anymore. Um, I'm sorry. And, and I'm... I want to pray for you. You, know, you, can, you can bridge that gap. But the temptation when we're doing something that we know is going to be hard institutionally is to act like a formal institution in that moment, to create some relational distance because it feels safer. I think it's the exact wrong decision to make. Um, we've got to close that distance. There's a reason Jesus' primary piece of furniture in his ministry is a table and not a pulpit. I don't remember him ever having a pulpit. <laughs> he sits at lots of tables. Um, and we need to do the same thing. Okay, so it, it became really important. Uh, I, I mentioned yesterday, it was a bit confusing to some people. When, when the elders would say, no, we're, the reason we studied this uh, is because we felt like God was asking us to. There was nobody telling us we had to. The staff wasn't pushing us to do it. Member, a group of members wasn't pushing us to do it. You have somebody say, yeah, well, my friend of 35 years who's gone here is now going to a church five minutes, this is Abilene, all churches are five minutes away. <laughs> um, by the way, this is, a, this is one of the challenges of Abilene, Texas. There are, 
30 to 40 churches of Christ all within about a 12-minute radius. You already have friends who go there, even if you've never gone there. It is really easy to leave your church. Um, exceptionally easy. A lot of Abilene people will go to one church for the preaching. Their kids will go to a different church for the youth ministry, and they'll send their kids to a different church's uh, camp. They just It's like a buffet of options. Um, and it makes it makes appealing to a family metaphor for church of we're going to stay and we're going to reason this out we're going to talk it makes it really difficult Um, and so that's a unique challenge we face Uh, the other thing that became important number two is honoring the validity of personal experience when you're making a church decision and we talked about this some yesterday but the, the key issue here is when you read acts 15 the entire reason for the jerusalem council is the personal the collective personal experience of Paul and Barnabas and the Gentiles. They have witnessed God working in their lives. They've come to Christ, but they haven't become practicing Jews first. Right? That's the theological issue. It's not a big heated debate now, but it was then. You know, can you follow Jesus without first becoming a Jew? Um, and, and what Paul and Barnabas are saying is, well, maybe that's never happened before. Maybe the only way you've ever been able to be a part of the covenant people is by practicing the, the Mosaic law and, and becoming uh, a practicing Jew. But now all that's changed in Jesus. And the proof they have are people's personal experiences. And the church in Acts 15 values those experiences enough to risk the future of the church to make a decision. Uh, and it's difficult. Uh, I think it's why Luke's writing about it, is he wants us to know that from the very outset, there's a tension on what actually holds us together, right? How are we supposed to treat one another when, without doubt, questions and disagreements and arguments are going to happen, they're going to arise, so what's the church supposed to do, right? Well, this is what they, they don't tell people, um, well, because I've never experienced that, God can't be doing that in your life. Right? Because the kingdom of God is always bigger than your experience of it. That's tricky. Because um, I, I, if it's never happened to me, it's really difficult for me to give it the kind of theological weight that in Acts 15 they give to Paul and Barnabas and these Gentile Christians. You know, the other thing that's, that's tricky is uh, we, we've got this sense that, that God is very predictable. Um, and I think... That's a human desire to to figure God out. Um, But what we end up doing is kind of placing God in a box. And then when God decides to be God and do something new, which, by the way, is one of the theological themes throughout Scripture, behold, I'm doing a new thing, um, that the gospel is a new thing. That resurrection, I know sometimes at Easter, you know, preachers will use analogies of like butterflies and caterpillars. Resurrection is not natural. It's not expected. People don't come back from the dead until he did, right? So you, you don't, you, you don't, we don't have a handle on God the way we want to. And it's difficult because in the, the Churches of Christ tradition, I mean, if you were going to really be brutally honest about our attempt at relating to God, it is to describe God in clean categories that we can then defend. And that works until it doesn't. Um, and if we're not open to revision, 
to say that whatever knowledge we have of God right now is partial, right? It's, it's not full. It can't be full. Then there's got to have some sort of, it's a mix of confident humility that we have a relationship with God. We're learning things about how God's at work in the world, but we don't, we're not in the position to say we've already discovered the truth, so now we're defending it. We're still seeking the truth. Right? And we're trying to explain what we're learning. So Paul and Barnabas tell this story, and it's not convincing to everyone in the room because of their own personal experiences, right? Some people stand up and say, yeah, but I've always followed this tradition, and it's been life-giving to me. I mean, that's the most redemptive take on, on the, the Pharisees standing up and saying, nope, those are great stories. Um, that doesn't change my doctrine. I think what they're trying to say is this tradition is how I've always felt certain that I belong to the people of God. And if you take that away, I'm not going to be sure anymore. Um, And so, you know, Peter then stands up and tells his own personal experience of being led by the Holy Spirit to minister to Cornelius and those other Gentile Christians. Again, the biggest deal in that whole story is not that Peter goes into the house, even though that's really against a Jewish ritual, you know, clean and unclean. He stays there a few days, which means he had to eat with them, which means he, he practiced table fellowship with them. Then later, Paul realizes Peter, Peter had a personal experience that was eye-opening, but he's having a hard time living that out around other people who disagree with the change in doctrine. Right? In Galatians, Peter, Peter's backsliding, just like we all do, because he had a breakthrough moment, but he doesn't, he doesn't exactly know how to live into it faithfully. Uh, and so that, that tension's always there. James listens to all of that before he goes to Scripture. And he goes to Scripture with the, the stories of, of how God is working ringing in his, his heart. And then he feels that he authentically, not, not in a, a, a manipulative way, but he authentically finds a passage in scripture that gives voice to the fact that this is really what God has wanted to do all along. They just didn't see it, right? So there's this expectation of going back to scripture with with people in your heart, with names and faces and lives and experiences in your heart and saying, can I find authentic places in God's word that resonate with what we're seeing? And when we do, we need to know that's how the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to things that God has been trying to help us see, but we haven't been able to receive it until this moment, right? And then James writes this letter of compromise. He, he, he has just enough tradition for the people who feel like there's value in it to say, we're not going to just scuttle it all together. There's goodness here, right? But we're also not going to force something on people uh, because it makes us comfortable, we're going to try to be open to how God is, is working among us. And so it's this phrase, and I told you, we use it over and over in our church context. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. That's a confident humility. Right? Paul talks about this in the same way in Philemon when he says, perhaps God sent Philemon to me so that you could receive him back as a brother. It's that same confident humility of saying, I have a sense of where God's moving. I have a sense of what God's doing. I'm not going to use God talk, however, to silence everybody else and say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt this is what God told me to do. We have got to strike that balance. In our tradition, we tend to never use God language. In other traditions, I feel like, you know, I don't think God gets you good parking spots at the mall. 
And I've heard people talk that way sometimes, right? Like, there's a balance here to say, I want to see where God's moving. I want to name where God's moving. But I also want to say, perhaps, and it seems, to give other people that space. Uh, One of the things we had to do is to say to the elders, you trust your personal experience when you realize it. But a lot of the times, it's invisible to you. So it's driving you, but you don't even know it's what's driving you. So the first thing we've got to do is talk openly about what, what is it that you've experienced that relates to expanding or limiting the roles of women in the life of our church that matters to you, right? Tell me stories about your daughters. Tell me stories about your granddaughters. Tell me times you've gone to churches that do this and it moved you. Tell me times when, when women have prayed over you and you knew it was different than men praying over you because of the experience you had. Tell me about a time this happened and the roof didn't fall down, Right? On the other hand, tell me why you're terrified. You know, tell me the anecdotal stories you know of other churches who did this and they lost half their membership. Um, tell me all that. Okay, and then make the choice to value other people's personal experience. <laughs> A good start is to say as much as your own. I'm pretty sure Paul would say more than your own. Uh, but one of the things we noticed was they valued their own personal experience once they realized it, but they were really suspicious of yours. Um, And they were suspicious of each other's. And they felt like if they told people at church, hey, one of the reasons I came to this decision is a story, that that wasn't good enough. That the only way we could talk about making the decision is saying, yeah, we randomly opened up to 1 Corinthians 14, and we randomly opened up to 1 Timothy 2, and then we decided to talk about this, and this is the decision we made. It became really important to say, God is at work in people's lives. God is at work in our life, and are we willing to try to see the places that God is leading us? Okay. Uh, third, developing the ongoing practice of personal theological reflection. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because it's really simple. The reality is... It was really important for my elders that they knew ahead of time that they were going to each have a face-to-face conversation with me about their experience of trying to make this decision and carry it out. Most of my elders never sat down with a preacher like that in the wake of a hard decision to connect and reflect on what happened. Which means that in most cases, when churches make really hard decisions once and it goes well, they don't collect enough data to repeat that successful process again. It's lost. They don't even know what worked or what didn't work. They're just glad it's over. (laughs) Right? Um, So asking them, tell me, over the last 19 months, when have you felt the most alive? When have you felt the most connected to God? Right? And they have to think about that. When have you felt the most drained? When were you most tempted to bail? You know, you made it all the way through this process. How do you, how do you think that happened? Um, who are you most afraid of? You know, we were, I did these interviews between the time they'd made the decision and we were going to announce it. Right? So they were waiting to, to announce it. So there was some anxiety about, okay, who is it? Who comes to mind that you know this is going to be difficult for? And do you have a plan of when you're going to set up a coffee or a lunch with them to proactively talk to them about what this is, what this is going to mean for them? Simply asking those questions uh, became really important in terms of all of us realizing what worked and what didn't work for us, what was helpful and wasn't helpful to us. Um, the other aspect that was really important was simply spending an hour with me. 
and me spending an hour with them. Um, and because all of the interviews went longer than I needed for my five questions. Um, and most of the elders said, if, you know, Jared, if I know you're always going to do this to us after we make decisions, I'll have better stories to share with you next time. <laughs> in other words, knowing, knowing the conversation's going to come changes you in the midst of the journey to pay attention. Right? And so it's simple, but we just don't do it enough. We don't ask each other, how did you see God at work in this process? What, what worked and what didn't? Okay, the other was uh, increasing scriptural theological understanding. The main difference here I, I want to point out, and I wish I had a little bit more time to talk about this, but we, we just don't. I think for the most part in the churches of Christ, but I, I, you know, all of this, I want to give the caveat, all of this is obviously about Southern Hills Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. I can't, I can't speak about all churches. But when we talked about having a scriptural basis for the decision we were making, the primary concern is the exegetical process of trying to get back to the original meaning in the original context. That, that was all we were talking about, um, which is really important. Okay, it's really important to get back there. It's really important to understand it. It starts getting a little fuzzy when you start talking about the original meaning to the author because you've got to figure out if you mean Paul or God. And in the Old Testament, we're all pretty comfortable saying the prophets said things they didn't understand personally. But we never talk that way about Paul. Right? Paul knows everything he's talking about. And he knows all of the implications. Right? But what if, what if Paul was along a journey just like the rest of us? And he has some moments where he's reacting to a situation that he's got to deal with right now. Um, and then he's got moments where he sees the long-term story and where it's headed. And he doesn't even know exactly how to get there, and he doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like, but he knows it's different from what he's currently experiencing in church. And he writes those in his letters, right? That One of the ones we always go back to is Galatians 3, where he seems to have this vision moment of God's, this is the language we kept using, God's preferred future for the world. What do we really believe? That's the first question the church should be asking, right? What kind of world is God, is God wanting and desiring and longing for? What, what, how does Jesus really undo the curse of the fall, and how can we participate in that, in the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things? That's not a question we start with when we're, we're studying the Bible for the most part. It's what was the Greek? What was it like in Ephesus? What was it like in, you know, Corinth? What was happening? Um, what are the similarities between those churches and our churches? You know, the tricky part here is, in the churches of Christ, we're trying to recreate the first century church except for not the real one, an ideal one. Because you don't want to be like the church in Corinth. It's a dumpster fire. <laughs> right? That's, that's where this starts to get tricky. So here's the thing. God wants something for the church that's never actually happened yet. So if we're only going back to what happened and the context of what happened, we're not actually living into the vision that Scripture has of what's possible in the world because of Jesus. We never got that second part down. We had moments where we talked about it. We had moments where we leaned into, look, we want to interpret with mission, not just, you know, first century church context. 
But for the most part, when we got ready to explain it to people, we were talking about, here's what women were allowed to do, as far as we can tell from a close reading of the New Testament, here's what women were allowed to do then. We at least want to restore those roles and those opportunities. Um, that, was, that was the theological argument from Scripture our elders were equipped to make. What that means is my position on this is more progressive than my elderships, and they know it. The church knows it. The reason that was important is everyone at church knows I'm compromising to still be there. Which means that if you're far to the other side of the conversation and you know I'm compromising to stay at the table, you're more likely to say, well, okay, I'll come a little bit towards you. If you're willing to come towards me, I'm willing to come towards you. Um, and that became something that was really important. But I, I want to say, I wish we could come to a place when we open up Scripture that we're not just asking about the world that created the text, we're asking about the world that the text imagines is possible. Um, that's a shift we need to learn. Okay, equipping elders to be visionary leaders. I think the key question that our elders needed to ask, and they're, they're still needing to ask, is where is God leading us now? Not, how do we keep as many of our members as possible happy and agreeing with us so that they won't leave? Um, which means that mission is primary and institutional maintenance is secondary. That's really hard because in almost every aspect of my church life, almost every voice I'm hearing, including my own, unless I struggle against it, is I need to do everything in my power to save my church. The only way to save my church is to get it interested in saving the world. <laughs> Right, so we talked about that yesterday. I, I think that shift has to regularly be talked about. It has to be reinforced. We have to keep asking the question, who is our church for? And if the only answer is it's for us, we're just like Israel deciding that God picked us because we're his favorite. And we don't realize he picked us for a job. He picked us for a task um, to partner with him. This was, this was also very difficult for our elders to maintain, but they wanted to lean into believing that they weren't called to simply manage the flock. What's hard about that is the flock likes to be managed. It doesn't like to be led. Um, and, and the difficulty here, you know, we, again, we talked to 35 churches about how they did this. And one of the things we learned was that if you put it up to a vote, which feels super natural for our context, some chunk of your folks are going to lose the vote, uh, and they're going to feel like they weren't listened to. So we didn't do a vote. Our elders got up and said, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. This is what we're going to do. I laid out the same theological um, material that we gave to the elders, gave that, made that available to the church. So the primary, we, here's what I'll say. If you're going to be a visionary leadership, you're going to have to pick your criticism. Don't get criticized on accident. Get criticized on purpose, and get criticized in the way that, that you, you think is, is actually faithful to God's action, asking you to do. So here's what we didn't think we could survive. We couldn't survive being criticized as misleading the church by saying, we're going to do an open-ended study. Nobody ever believes that when you say that anyway, right? They feel immediately like there's a hidden agenda, because there usually is. So by saying just outright, we've, we've studied this, we've prayed, this is where we are. You asked us to be your elders. You voted, you voted us in. But you don't get to vote on every leadership decision we make. Um, and what I pushed hard in that is, look, 
We are not running a spiritual company where your clients are customers. And we are not running a democratic republic that happens to be called a church. We are a family. And families don't take votes, they have voices. And we want to hear from you. But we're not going to reduce this to voting. Um, and families have trusted voices that sit at the head of the table. And so you've asked these people to be your family leaders. That doesn't only work when they're leading exactly the way you would lead if you were in their position. It has to also include that, that when they make decisions you don't agree with, they're still your leaders. Um, that didn't work very well. Um, because, sadly, a lot of our church members would rather be clients and customers or voters than brothers and sisters. They want to be treated that way. They want to demand the rights of a client or a customer. Hey, I paid for this. This is what I want. Um, and we just kept saying, you may demand to be treated that way. We're not going to treat you that way. Um, we're family. And so we, we kept talking about that. And we still talk about it. Number six, providing uh, engaging educational material. This was tricky. I feel like everybody's uh, attention spans are just getting worse and worse and worse. Our phones are making us dumber all the time, I think. Uh, everything you read online says, you know, if people even have to scroll one screen down, they don't tend to read the email or the article or whatever. So asking our elders in the midst of their busy lives to read a lot of things was challenging. But again, one of our, our mantras in all this was, you are not entitled to an uninformed opinion. You can have it, you just can't talk about it in the meetings. So if you're going to talk in our meetings, you have to have done your homework. You signed up to be an elder. Um, and if you know, you're going to model ongoing, lifelong learning as a disciple, this is part of what that is. So, we read the blue parakeet together. I told you most of my elders hated it, um, but it shaped them. It helped them think about the, the questions they ask when they interpret scripture. We use that book because while it does talk about women's roles in the life of the church, it's not only about that. It's about a posture to scripture, and I'm fully aware that that's going to be a foundation that we need time and again as we have these conversations in the future. We then created packets. I have all this stuff in PDFs, so if you want all this at some point, come up, I'll write my email down, um, I, I can get it to you. We created three packets for them that we estimated would take about an hour to read each. So they read the book, uh, they, had, they had about a month to read the book, then we gave them a month to read each one of these uh, subsequent packets. The first one was simply about the way we bring our baggage to scripture and trying to be honest about it. Right? So we're aware of it. We know what's going on. Um, we don't assume that you're subjective, but I'm objective. Um, that's what started to happen with some of my elders early on. I'd say, hey, we all read with a bias. And they'd say, well, I know you do, but I don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we had to work on that. Uh, but the, the first packet was about that posture of what do I bring with myself to the text. The second was about visionary leadership. So you don't, you don't want to just maintain the institution, right? We want to do something else. The third was a more in-depth dive into those prohibitive passages. And again, mostly exegetical focus of what, what was the original context, what was going on there. And then we had those meetings uh, where we talked about it. Uh, most of the guys read most of the stuff, you could tell. 
and it made a big difference. Um, some of the guys, we had one guy in particular, it was really disappointing to me, he came up halfway through and said, hey, I'm not going to read any of this stuff because I don't like it, I'm going to do my own study. Um, I said, well, you're really frustrating me right now, but you're going to do what you want to do. Um, he studied his way to being an affirmative vote. Um, but one of the things I told him was, it's not okay for you just to say, I don't mind you doing extra homework, but we all need to do the basic homework together, right? So we have a shared experience. Um, but it's, it's difficult to, for lack of a better term, enforce that, right? Uh, the other thing that started happening was they found good stuff or stuff they thought was good, right? <laughs> Which was stressful to me. Um, but it was really important for them to feel like they, if they found a great sermon or a good Bible class or they found a, a good article, that they could share it freely with each other. Um, and that happened a little bit. Here's what was interesting. It totally mattered who shared it. We had a couple of guys early on that you knew, right? This guy's a yes vote, and he's crying every time he talks about it. And the guys just had a hard time with emotion, right? So if you got emotional in a meeting, you kind of got... You got labeled. And then we had guys that were, I mean, they were getting red and veins were popping out of the side of their head and they were no vote, right? You could tell. So if, if they shared something, this is, this is what's wrong with our world right now. <laughs> All they cared about was who sent it. Um, they were not interested in the process of whatever that article or that Bible class or it was just, I, you're not on my side of this debate, so if you share it, I'm not reading it. I'm not watching it. If my guy shares it, I'll read it and watch it and say it was the best thing ever. So we had to work through that. Um, and there were a few times I had to kind of step in and say, hey, this guy might have written a good article, but here's some other things he's written. So we need to be careful talking about him <laughs> to the whole church about, you know, being someone they should read a lot from. So, but that was important. Okay, seven was listening to outside voices. Once they'd made the vote uh, and we were having to wait to make the, 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 the announcement, Real quickly, the reason we had to do that was we had a, we're in a small town, Abilene. We had a, the day after I finished this project, I got a call from a sheriff's office saying, does this guy volunteer at your church? Yes, he's being arrested for abusing children. And you need to know that, and your church is gonna be mentioned tonight on the news um, as a place he worked. So for the next nine months, we didn't know what was gonna happen. So I told the elders, and um, I, I made a few of them really mad. I said, we cannot do this statement right now. We just can't. We have to wait until we find out if any of you have leadership credibility left. Um, because if this guy abused kids at this church, we're, we're in big, big trouble. Um, and we, you know, we looked into it. Like all churches, we have major safety policies and all of that. Um, and it turned out that um, he had other locations where that was happening. Uh, but it took months to find that out. And I was mentioned in the news, our church was mentioned in the news multiple times, um, and it was just stressful to not know what was going to happen. So one of the things I would say to you is there are times, you know, there's never a perfect time to make a significant change. That's trauma to a church. But if something, some curveball comes from outside at, at that level, please don't add on top of that something this difficult, Right. And I had elders mad at saying, Jared, there's going to be something else after this. And I said, I hope it's not like this. You know, maybe like we, we have a hailstorm, we have to replace our roof or something, but I hope it's not like this. This is different. Um, and we, ha we were having to do 
We had to send an email out to our church teaching our parents how to ask their children if they've been sexually abused. Um, my daughters still are confused about what happened and why we had to have those, you know, anyway. I say all that to say that's why there's a lag when you look at the timeline at the, the end of the handout. But in that time, we brought some people in. And we brought people in to keep telling the elders, you think that you're going to be able to calm anxious people down by calmly, by, by calmly telling them why they're theologically wrong. That is not going to work. Um, and you also can't tell them this isn't important and it's not a big deal. Right? Because you don't put the church through something that's not, a, that's not core. You, if you're going to do this, it matters and it's hard and it's difficult. And you need to be honest about that. But what we had to talk about was, okay, um, once you've laid out the basics and their response to you, again, because of our heritage, is not going to be, well, I just don't feel good about that. Because in our tradition, we don't value emotion. Right? The only play you have in our tradition is you're twisting the Bible, or you don't care about the Bible, or you're not taking the Bible seriously. Um, and one of the things that happened pretty quickly was we were clear enough theologically that our folks didn't even make that argument. Here's the argument they made. I don't have a problem that we're doing it. I don't like how you did it. Because you can argue that forever. And 99% of those people didn't agree theologically, but they had, read, they had read the room well enough to know they were in a minority, and they weren't going to admit that. So then they were going to critique how we did it. And our elders had been warned that that was going to be one of the things people would say, because there's a thousand, there's a million ways to do this, right? You have to choose a way to do it, and you're always open to criticism. And the primary criticism for us was you got up and made a statement, and you didn't let us talk to you first. Why did you do that? Uh, here's why we did it. We talked to 35 other church leaders, churches, uh, leaders of other churches. We asked them what caused the most trauma, what hurt the church the most. And what we found was once it became an open debate within the church, people tore each other apart. We're going to draw the fire. The only people you can be angry with are us, right? So tell me why you're angry. Uh, and a lot of those conversations worked. A lot of those people are still at our church. They're, they're still bruised and they're hurting, uh, but they're there. And I, I would argue their trust in the elders that they spoke with one-on-one -on -one deepened. Um, it, it, it was really important. But over and over, I had to keep telling them, they would call me frantic. Hey, what's that? What's that article I read? That, like, yeah, I'd say, you don't, how about you try a hug first? Um, and then sit down and listen to the person. Because I'm telling you now, going around circles on this theological thing, unless they're asking you calmly to say, okay, I'm, I, I want to get there. Help me get there. Now, again, we, we gave a packet to the entire church that had all of the material we worked through. But again, people wanted to have uninformed opinions. You know, you'd ask somebody, well, what, what did you find when you read the packet? I didn't read that packet. It's too long. Nobody's reading that packet. You're wrong. <laughs> you know, and you say, well, read the packet before we're going to talk about this. If it's, if it's really theological, read the packet. We'll talk about this. It wasn't ever that. We had people come in and tell them, 
You know, if you've maintained a church for a long time, people have grown accustomed to the idea that you're never going to make them uncomfortable. It's a governing principle of your church, and now you're betraying that principle. Uh, and they're going to act like toddlers. I mean, that's one of the guys came in and said, this is literally how toddlers behave. When they don't get their way, they throw a fit. And what bad parents do is they give in because they'd rather bear pain than make their child have the pain of growing up. So over and over as elders, we had to keep, and staff, we, I had to keep saying, don't be a bad parent. <laughs> don't be a bad parent. Right? This person needs to go through some struggle to learn, to, to learn how to grow. We've just never, we've been spoon feeding them for 40 years. They're mad about it. But it's our fault they're mad about it. So we're going to have to bear some pain, and they're going to have to bear some pain, and you're going to have to bear the pain of watching them be in pain. And that's difficult for us to do, right? We had these guys tell us that. We had four resource people, experts in the field, come and tell us that. You know what we heard over and over from people? I didn't think they knew what they were talking about. And then everything they said happened. So what we had to do is we sent out summaries of what they halfway listened to the first time because they didn't think the expert knew what they were talking about. We resent out the summaries to say, okay, now that you know that the things they talked about are going to happen, here's the advice they gave us. Um, okay. There's a limit to those outside voices, but I think they're important. The main thing I would say is, one of the, we, we brought in Eddie and Annette Sharp, uh, whose church went through this ahead of us. And Eddie and Annette were able to tell stories of what changed in the life of their church because they took this risk. Okay, and that helped our elders have a sense of, this is going to be really difficult, but it's really important for us to get to the places where those kinds of things could happen at Southern Hills. Um, so just talking about a future that's possible, that's not all scary, was, was really formative and important. Okay, this is the, the most important step, at least in terms of our church, and that was that the ministerial staff was invited in to almost every part of this process. And I'm convinced the only reason we were allowed to stay in the room is we practiced restraint that drove me crazy. Um, and I'm not bragging about this. It's the, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in ministry. You know, I feel like I went to school to be the answer guy. But I couldn't, I, all I could be was the ask really good questions guy. Um, and I couldn't jump in every time a, a debate started to happen. And I thought, we've talked about this 15 times. Why aren't you getting this? You know, or we, you've made this known five times tonight. Why are we still talking about this? So we, and we talked about as a staff, we would pray before those meetings, God help us be quiet. They invited us in, they don't have to. And if they start feeling pushed by us, they're going to disinvite us from the room. And there's too much at stake for us not to be a part of this conversation. So we tried really hard to keep our restraint. Um, I, I told you yesterday, there was a couple of elders that felt like they couldn't be honest in front of our two female staff members. So in other words, they could talk about making a decision that would impact women. They just didn't want women in the room when they talked about it. Um, and so what I, I got a phone call from the eldership that said, the elders want to meet, but they don't want these two staff members to be present. And I said, then we're not coming. It's okay. It's okay. You guys need to talk it out. 
Um, but I'm not coming uh, as a staff member if we're not all coming. Um, and frankly, if, if we can't talk about this with women present and we're making decisions that are going to deeply impact not just women, but everyone in our church, um, that's a problem to me. And I need somebody to tell them that. So one of our elders said, I'll, I'll convey that message, um, that there, there might should be women's voices in the room when we're talking about women. Um, and several of the elders were frustrated with it, and they, they really had to have some difficult conversations together about um, how much do you, you know, what does grace actually mean? You know, it's got to be something more than nice. It's got to also include speaking the truth and love to one another. And so there were, ended up being f- one formal meeting. Get this, the guy who demanded the meeting missed it. There were four informal meetings um, where on Wednesday nights, because the staff, you know, we're all doing stuff on Wednesday nights, they met together and they just prayed. Um, and that was really important for them. Uh, it, was, it was, I think, one of the most important things they did was they didn't debate it, they just prayed. Um, and I think they prayed differently without us in the room. And I think it's important, again, to recognize there are different roles. Uh, the eldership and the staff are not the same thing. They are a team, but it does impact um, the staff differently than the elders. And the elders needed to have a sense that this was what God was leading them to do. It isn't what Jared is telling us we need to do. Um, and those, those meetings helped that happen. Uh, there was one particular meeting uh, where I lost my restraint. Um, and I, it was driving me crazy how many of the guys... The, the way they were trying to deal with the change was to say, this isn't that big of a deal to God. Because they were trying to convince themselves this wasn't that big of a deal. They were wanting to go through with it. But the rhetoric they were going to try to use was this just isn't. One guy kept saying, out of the top ten things that God cares about, this doesn't even make the top hundred. You know, I, I finally just said, guys, you're not. This is making me. And I was watching the female staff members in the room. Um, you know, watching them react to, to guys saying, this just doesn't matter. This isn't that big of a deal. Um, and saying, no, th- that's the exact wrong way <laughs> to talk about this. And I got angry uh, enough that they noticed I got angry. Um, and so I had to end up doing some repair to go around to the, the elders who I had made uncomfortable to say, look, I'm not trying to force my way on you, but I want us to make sure we talk, we tell the truth to each other about what we're doing here. Um, and it actually strengthened things, you know, be able to have that confessional conversation. Um, but if that had happened over and over again, I wouldn't still be there, right? And, and I wouldn't have been invited in the room um, beyond that. So I think that's a really important thing. Okay, and then finally, uh, I want to talk just a minute about the process we, we were engaged in on implementing the decision. So once they voted... Uh, we immediately set up a committee. We had two staff members on it and three elders, and they were a working research committee to talk to every church they could find that had done this and what had gone well and what hadn't gone well. They ended up picking six churches out of those 35 that they talked to that they felt were the most similar to us. And then they called the leaders of those churches um, additional times and tried to drill down deeper to figure out what worked and what didn't. And again, Almost every one of those churches had announced to the church, we're going to start studying this. 
The moment they did that, um, they lost people. Then angry people who thought they could change everyone's mind stayed throughout the study and got increasingly angry and left at different times along the way. And then when they made an announcement, they lost another chunk of people. In every case, it took longer than a year. So it dominated the church conversation for at least a year. And we talked to a lot of these folks, and one of the things we found was, because in most churches, organically, women are doing more and more things, what you're really debating for most people, it, it starts to feel like a worship fight. And one of the quickest ways to kill the momentum of your church is to start fighting about worship. Right? So, so what you've got to figure out how to do is to say, this isn't just a worship fight, but we don't want it to dominate for 24 months. Right? We, we want to be clear about it. Um, but we also don't want it to be the, we have a broader mission than that. The other thing we had to do was redefine what worship is. Talked about yesterday, um, I think in our tradition, worship is where we get it right because we know we don't get it right everywhere else in our life. And we're hoping if we get it right for an hour and a half, God will, at the end of time, will be more likely to let us go to heaven. Um, so the difficulty there then is that if we get it wrong in there, um, everything's at stake. So anytime you talk about worship in the churches of Christ, somebody feels like they've got a gun to their head and, you know, hell is at play. You can't reason with somebody who's afraid that you're going to accidentally send them to hell. You just can't. So we had to talk a lot about what if worship is not the place where we make ourselves worthy, it's the place we lean into God's preferred future. And we practice in here, because we can do it for an hour and a half, we practice in here that future world God's trying to bring into our world. And then we hope it impacts all the rest of our life, right? The rest of our week is impacted by how we've treated each other, how we've listened to each other, how we have given space to one another in this place. That what God wants us to do in worship is not try to be perfect, it's try to have our imaginations converted again, right? That's what worship is. Um, again, you have people that can walk down that road with you and other people who say, that I don't even know what you're talking about. I just know that I like the older songs. Um, so uh, we made the statement, I taught a class with, I would argue, our oldest standing, most trusted elder for our older generation. We co-taught a class together. All this stuff's available at the Southern Hills Church of Christ website. The classes are available, all of it, right? So we, we, in three weeks, we had a combined adult class that walked through the basic theological argument. And then we kept saying at the end of each one of those classes, we had our, our shepherding couples in the room, and we said, if you have any questions about this, pick one of these couples, pick a staff member, come talk to somebody. Because one of the things we learned in talking to these churches is when you do town hall listening sessions, you have mobs that show up. Um, you don't have constructive conversation. And so we kept pushing towards smaller and smaller settings where people could talk face to face. One of the things you learn is a lot of people don't have the courage to do that. Um, they'll, they'll join a mob. <laughs> but they don't have the courage on their own to say, I wanna sit down and talk to one of our staff members or one of our elders. But the people who do need a lot more personal help than some major room uh, form of conversation and address could handle. And so what that meant was for the, the next, I would say four to six months, 
you know, the staff was having to function then as chaplains to the elders who were having coffee and breakfast and meals, and, and it was hard um, because not all those conversations were, were going the ways they hoped they would, um, but we were able to walk alongside of them, pray with them, give them advice, um, offer to be at those meetings with, with people. Um, and basically what happened was we lost all the people we were going to lose in about four weeks. Um, so we had a statement. I talked about it in class for three weeks. So this, this dominated our church news cycle for five weeks. And then we moved into saying, how can we love our neighborhood better? Right? And we've been focused on that intently um, ever since. And that's allowed us then to not get stuck in this vortex of worship preferences and who gets to do what. Um, and thinking that that's all that, that we're talking about, because we're talking about something much deeper than that. And part of God's preferred future is not only how we worship, but how we live worship. Um, and so how do we do that? So those are the nine primary things uh, in my project. I obviously flesh these out a lot more than the summary I have here, but I wanted to give that to you in case you're uh, in a position to start thinking about the process, what worked for us. Uh, this is what worked for us. We've got a, f a few minutes. <laughs> I didn't mean to do this. Um, we've got a few minutes for questions, yeah. Yeah. And so going to point one, without manipulating them, <laughs> that's not how teams do it. Yeah. Oh my. Um, how, how can I help my elders keep the importance of this? So I do think part of what's important, I was really tempted at times to say, guys, I know you're scared, but you're just scared of the wrong thing. That's not a good way to motivate people. Right? God doesn't motivate people um, through fear. I mean, he does, but it doesn't work very long, and he comes back and says, yeah, uh, I'm going to take a different approach next time. Right? So um, it's got to be invitation. It can't be, you know, what you should be afraid of is, is what's going to happen to the future of the church if we don't have this conversation. You know, I, I think the challenge is going to be, can you, can you help them see what is happening to people in your church who are, who are experiencing some form of harm or distress, and again, that's core to the gospel, can you at least make those people visible? Can you, can you share those stories? And again, I don't think, you could do that in a manipulative way, but I, I don't think it has to be. Um, and I think you also need to share where you are personally. I, th I think it's fine to go into an eldership and say, I, I don't want to push this on you, I just need you to know this is something that's really central to my understanding of, of church, and maybe we're not ready to talk about it yet, but I need you to know this really matters to me. And it may take several times um, of saying things like that over the course of, of a handful of years even before someone's going to finally say, we need to talk about this. But I don't think I would just sit and wait. Um, I think your job as a minister would be to make, to help craft a story that's honest and authentic, but helps them understand what's really going on. Because I think what's difficult is even in our own churches, we, we don't know all the stories, and we need help to see them. Yeah. One thing I would tell people, and I don't know if, if you've got anything in your material, yeah. but what we've discovered is when people leave, their friends grieve. Really, yeah. That, yeah. never think about it. Right. And that grieving is hard. Yeah. You know, but if you recognize 
Yes. Right. No. Yeah. It is. Right. Well, and it's it's also um, they're not just grieving the loss of their friends, which is real. It's uh, by the way, it's why the elders and staff aren't exactly the same. I didn't lose a single friend over this at church. My elders lost many friends um, who go to church with them, right? So that's automatically different already. Uh, But what I will say is they're also grieving that their church is no longer the same that it was. Like more, more than once I've had people crying or writing me really, um, I would say, painful and ugly letters or emails, right? Because they're just hurting. And what they're trying to say through all that is, you've killed, the, you've killed the church that I grew up in. This isn't that church anymore. Um, and part of me wants to say, well, it shouldn't be. But that's, <laughs> that's not helpful, um, right? That we just, we have to sit with people and let them grieve some because it's true. They've lost friends who don't go there anymore and it isn't the church. That maybe for them it felt like the week before the announcement, uh, even though it's been changing. Um, I think you're right. Grieving and grieving takes time. Even though we're not talking about it, it's not dominating our church conversations, people in our church are sad. Um, and so there's, there's got to be some patience there. And I've had a hard time with that. I've wanted, I've wanted people to grieve faster, but I don't get to decide that for them. Yeah. Yeah. A minister wants to prevent change? Yeah, not in this topic, in something else. Yeah, I'm doing that myself right now. Um, again, I think uh, I, the key for me has been to have the courage to speak directly to my elders um, and to avoid the tendency. I have 16 of them. They're never on the same page, right? And the temptation is to have pre and post meetings to the meeting, to to take 16 of them to lunch and try to get them. And I'm telling you right now that that seems like it works. It doesn't work. You'll have a reputation for saying one thing to one elder that gets them there and another thing to, you've got to have the courage to say that to the full room and be clear. Um, and you've got to ask the same thing from them. We have a rule at Southern Hills where if someone starts having a side meeting, I'm going to call them out to say, wait a minute, if we can't say it in the big room, we're not going to start this thing over here where then you're going to bring something later and, or you're going to undo a decision we made. If we're, if we're going to reason together and d- deal with this, we're going to do it in the big room together. Everybody's going to put their cards on the table and we're going to trust that we have enough relationship here that we can survive a disagreement. And I have to say that over and over and over again. And I make them mad. But we love each other. Um, and I think that's part of what, what's going to take. I'm sorry, we're running over, so if you need to go, I'll end this in a moment here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you had gone through this whole process. Yeah. And it would have come out the other way. Yeah. And the announcement that you had to make. Yeah. Was the announcement that you got. Right. 
It would really depend on what the announcement was. Um, it, would, it would depend on how they, how they treated the church with it. Um, this is central enough to me. I probably would not be there long term. But I promise you, I, I had elders ask me that question. And I said to them, I am not making an emotional ultimatum about this. If this church isn't ready for this, I need to know that. Um, but I'm not going to demand that this church become the church I think it should be overnight. Um, because, again, I needed to model that for people. I needed to model that for the elders because someone was going to lose this vote, right? Somebody was going to have that statement. It wasn't going to be what they wanted. My question is, would you have brought it around later? Would you have said, timing's not right? Yeah. If, if I could live with what they, you know, if I felt like it was compassionate enough and it was just we have to wait for right now, there's a, there's a scenario where I wait. And, but I want to be clear, I didn't bring this up. The elders came to me to, to help them do this. They knew what I believed about it, but I didn't say, I mean, I'd only been there like two years when they, we started this, and I wouldn't have done that. Last question. Uh, for those of us who yeah. yeah, it's J-A-R-R-O-D, so Jared, at Sohills, S-O-H-I-L-L-S, church.org. You could also go to our website, and you can, almost all of this, there's, my thesis isn't on there, but a lot of this stuff is on there in PDF form. So, thank you for being here.